Well, good morning, friends. Please do uh, grab a Bible if you didn't pick one up coming in. And we are turning back to the book of Esther, where this morning we're beginning to reach the climax of the story. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 to 14. It's page 410 in the church Bibles. There's a little pile there by the door. Last week we saw Esther agree to be the voice of her people living under the sentence of death. That was a terrifying choice that she made. And so she called on all the Jewish people across the empire to fast with her and by implication pray for her for three days. And then the story continues in verse 1. When the third day arrived... Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. And the king was sitting upon his royal throne inside the royal palace, facing the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in court, she won favor in his eyes. And so the king stretched out the golden scepter that was in his hands towards Esther. Then Esther drew near, and she touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And it shall be given to you, up to half the kingdom. So Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I've prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do the word of Esther. So the king came and Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom and it shall be done. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request, if I found favor in the eyes of the king, And if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king come and Haman to the banquet that I'll prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do according to the king's word. So Haman went out that day rejoicing and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with fury against Mordecai. But Haman controlled himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zerash. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his wealth and the abundance of his sons and all the ways that the king had honored and advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet she prepared. And also tomorrow I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Judean sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zerash and all his friends said to him, let a wooden spike 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai impaled upon it. Then go with the king to the feast joyfully. This idea pleased Haman, and he made the wooden spike. Well, what on earth is she up to? 
There are some stories where you can predict every move of every character. You're let in on the plan right from the start. But Esther is not one of those stories. In fact, one of the things that makes it so thrilling is that even if we've read this book a hundred times, if we know every twist and turn by heart, we'd still be watching Esther here and asking ourselves that same question, what on earth is she up to? Three days ago, she came to the decision that defined her eternity. I am willing to die if that's what it costs to try and save my people. Three days of fasting, three days of praying for wisdom and courage and protection, three days to think. And very clearly now, Esther has a plan, and yet we're never told what it is. In fact, even when we get to the end of the book, we're still not quite sure how she hopes to pull it off. But today, our writer is going to slow his story right down. It's been nine long years since this book opened, nine years of their lives flying past in four chapters. And now the great thrilling climax of the book is all going to happen in two short days and one crucial night. But it will take all of chapters five to seven to tell it. And so the standard advice to preachers seems to be to rush through these chapters, get the story out of the way in one sermon. But if the writer slows his storytelling down so teasingly and deliberately, well, shouldn't we do the same? I think he wants us to enjoy these next three chapters. They're hilarious. And so we're going to lean into the suspense as much as we can. In fact, far too much. This morning, we are going to watch as both sides put their plans into place. First, Esther in verses 1 to 8, and then Haman in verses 9 to 14, or to be more precise, Haman's wife, Zeresh. Today, it's as if we're shown inside the tents of both commanders on the eve of a great battle. They are pouring over their maps, committing to their strategies. And then as the sun sets on the eve of the critical moment, we'll put this book away on the shelf and wait for Christmas. And then we can all stew over the mother of all cliffhangers, right where the writer wants us, waiting for the great reversal. Call me cruel, imagine what story time must be like for my poor kids, say whatever you want, but trust me, when the moment comes, it is going to be delicious, well worth the wait. This morning then, let's compare these great battle plans as each side prepares to make their move. And the question as we watch and as we wonder whose plan will come off is which one of these is in control? It seems like it's Esther, doesn't it? She is the one who is poised, subtle, regal. We can tell she's got something in mind and she's working on it with a huge amount of courage and patience and self-control, whereas Haman acts rashly, petulantly, not driven like her by a love of his people, but driven entirely by a love of his own ego. It seems like Esther has the advantage, 
but don't be so quick to decide. By the end of the chapter, Esther's tactics look like backfiring disastrously. And Haman can control himself too. He may be foolish, but he's not impulsive. This is a dangerous enemy. The truth is that even Esther is as out of her depth here as she no doubt felt. Maybe nobody is really in control, except we know better by now, don't we? Because as we read, we've picked up on all sorts of subtle hints that are dialing us in subconsciously on the message of this chapter. Whatever plans we make, whether those plans are wise and sacrificial or they are stupid and self-serving, whatever plans we make, there is someone else whose hands they are ultimately in. I wonder if the first clue is simply the timing. On the third day, verse 1, Esther put on her royal robes. For three days, she and her people have put themselves into the hands of the God who holds all things. They have fasted, prayed, mourned for their sin, identified with the dead. But the third day is God's day. Even here in the Old Testament, the third day is the day the dead are raised to life. Think of the prophet Jonah held for three days in the belly of death. Think of the nation of Israel under judgment in Hosea for two days. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. And think, of course, of the Lord of life himself, who after three days held naked and powerless in the tomb, was raised to glory and clothed in his royal robes, and stood once again where he belongs, before the throne of heaven. There are whole theaters to this war that Esther can't even see, let alone plan for. But there is one who can, and this is his day. And so Esther's big, decisive decision last week was the moment that changed her forever. But we saw, didn't we, it was not the hinge of this story. The hinge is coming, though, the great undoing, slowly, full of suspense. But when the sun sets on this third day, that great undoing will finally begin to dawn in a way where nothing that was planned here today could have possibly brought about. This is a story, then, of the best laid plans. First, in verses 1 to 8, there's the queen's gambit. For her people, there is still a whole year to wait for the moment of terror picked out by those magic dice. But for Esther, this is it. This is the moment, the life or death moment. Once she walks through that door into the throne room, uninvited, there is no going back. It's an automatic death sentence. Unless the king looks with favor on her so that she can be the mediator we're crying out for. So if you've watched too many Hollywood movies set in Persian harems, you might imagine she would put on her skimpiest sequined satin for this moment to catch his eye. And yet that's not at all what she does, is it? Verse 1, literally, 
she clothes herself in royalty, in all the dignity of her office as queen. She will face this moment claiming both identities as the mediator who belongs on both sides of the door. And now all we care about is one thing, isn't it? What will happen to Esther? But the writer drags it out for the rest of verse one while he paints the scene for us. The king is sat on his royal throne. Yes, great, but what happens to Esther? Well, he's inside his royal palace. Okay, cool, we've got it. We're intimidated, so what happens? And he's sat facing the door so that as she makes her big scandalous entrance, the king of kings is looking right at her. Right, so what happens? Well, the king saw his queen standing bravely in the court, and she won favor in his eyes, just like that. It's all over so quick, isn't it? After all that buildup, after 30 days, a month, where the, the king hasn't shown any interest in her at all, and for three days, the whole believing world went without food and prayed for a miracle in this moment, and then there it is, when God chooses to do a thing. It doesn't matter how much we've agonized, how much we've built it up in our heads, it's done. Remember what Proverbs tells us? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. And so for Esther, after all that agony, that instant he holds out his scepter, the pressure's released. She was with her people in ashes and death. And on the third day, she was lifted up and clothed like a queen and given life by the king. Sentence removed. That's Esther. But of course, her people, they are still on the outside, aren't they? With a death warrant signed that cannot be revoked. Now, though, at least they have a mediator where it matters, raised from death to life and welcomed into the presence of the king. And they are united to her. She's joined herself to them. And so her salvation here is like a little foreshadowing of theirs. It's a promise of what's to come. And that is a story we Christians know very well, isn't it? one raised from death to life to stand before God as a little promise of what we'll all face one day. Well, it's verse four that has us screaming at the book because that is the moment after this great release of pressure. That's the moment when we realize she has something planned that we haven't seen. Surely that was her moment. Every Jew in the world is waiting for death, and the king of kings just offered to give their mediator whatever she asks for, up to half the kingdom, surely that is the moment. And of course, he doesn't really mean he'll give her anything. It's classic, over-the-top, fairy-tale king language, that, isn't it? Boastful language. But she's got his interest. It's the moment they've been praying for. But instead of taking it and begging for their lives, she asks him to dinner instead. Oh, and do bring that charming new prime minister of yours. And so the king hurries to do the word of Esther, verse 5. But do you see how 
slowly but surely, God is wrapping the most powerful man in the world around Esther's little finger, which if you remember how this story began, is actually rather funny. What was the great fear of those seven wise men when Vashti said no to the king? This is a disaster, sire. Soon none of the women will respect their husbands. We need a law so that every man should be master in his own household, remember? Now we're in the throne room of the empire, and even there, the king himself who passed that law isn't quite wearing the trousers anymore. Scene two arrives very quickly. Snap, we're at the dinner party. And with the wine, he asks again. She's got him curious now, hasn't she? What on earth made this woman risk her life like this? And so he's more intense this time. What is your wish? What is your request? Twice, he asks. Name it, up to half the kingdom. And once again, Esther makes him wait. My wish and my request, now let me see. If I've truly found favor in the eyes of the king, she's saying, prove it by coming back tomorrow. Oh, and do bring Haman again. And then I'll do as you say. I'll tell you my wish. So what on earth is she playing at then? Two times she's had her moment, and she's left her people waiting on death row. Well, whatever she's doing, you've got to admire her poise, haven't you? It is masterly work, because maybe that king's offer seemed pretty generous, half the kingdom, but half the kingdom isn't enough. We Christians have the kind of savior who is willing to leave behind 99 sheep to go out into the night searching for one that had got himself lost. A savior who was willing to risk everything and spend himself and beat away the wolves just for one. And when we're lost to sin and death, when we're under this sentence of doom, that is the kind of savior we need. One whose gospel is absolutely rock solid and who will not let us slip out of his grasp. And whatever Esther is up to here, that seems to be the goal. Here is a king who just condemned her entire people without a question, who proudly promised her half of the kingdom before she'd even said a word. Would you want to stake your life on the promise of a man like that? Especially when the ask is going to cost him an enormous amount of silver and all the embarrassment of a U-turn. And so she has worked here with incredible subtlety and self-control to make it harder and harder and harder for him to back down. He's got himself invested now in two evenings with her. He's made his promise twice already. There's a third promise to come. And the clever way she's worded verse 8 means that just by coming to her second banquet, he's already committed himself to mercy. And best of all, she makes it all sound like his idea. Did you see that? The truth is, he is running around, as he said, doing Esther's word. But she talks here as if by finally coming out with what she wants, she'll be doing his word, really. Some of us husbands just need to believe that, don't we? 
But there is one very obvious take-home in all of that pantomime. How desperately important it is that the person who pleads for us can trust the one he stands before. Think how wonderfully secure we are that Jesus can stand in heaven for us without having to go through the charade. He stands robed and belonging before the steadfast king, never doubting his father's welcome into the throne room and pleading on something far more solid than the favor of some fickle tyrants. He can point to spilt blood, nail-pierced hands, and a faithful God. Every minute of every day, he can do that for you and for me. And before he even has to ask, his people are forgiven. Well, the dinner party reaches its end, and the invite to the next one is sent and scene change. This time, the camera doesn't cut to the next feast like we want it to. Instead, the story is interrupted, and we're following Haman on his trip home. And it will be a chapter and a half before we come back to the Queen's Gambit. For now, though, verses 9 to 14, we've got the snake's gallows. Haman leaves the citadel that night like the cock of the walk with his heart merry, which is a polite way of saying he's pretty hammered, and his head full of all the proud boasts that he has to tell his wife when they get home. But notice that ominous little detail, verse 9. He went out that day rejoicing. This will be the last time he ever whistles a happy tune because it just so happens that there is another rather unfortunate event waiting for him on his commute. There in his place at the gate sits Mordecai. And if you remember the last time this happened, Haman had to be told, didn't he, that Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. There was such a sea of sycophants that he couldn't even notice. Tonight, though, it just so happens that his commute takes him right past him. Or perhaps now he's got enough of a complex that he can't resist a look. He is on top of the world. But what about that wretched Judean man? Well, this time it's worse now than it was before because back then, remember, Mordecai wouldn't bow. Now he won't even stand, won't tremble, refuses to show any sign of fear before the man who just condemned him to death. That is quite some swagger, isn't it? There is a man who really, truly believes that his God upholds the universe. Somewhere in North Dorset, there is a little cottage with a very stubborn stain on the kitchen ceiling. And the last time I saw it was about 20 years ago. It had already been covered at that point with about six coats of paint to no avail. And that was the spot where an innocent little Rupert Hunt Taylor thought it would be fun to drop a minto into a bottle of Coke. And if you've ever seen the explosion that results when you do that, you'll understand why we moved house not long afterwards. Well, we've been in this book long enough now to know that nothing in it really just happens to happen. So why that night, when Harmon's heart is so merry, did the universe conspire for Mordecai to be sitting in his path? 
while that is the moment, the covenant God of Israel drops a little minto into Haman's soul. Bang. One child of God who isn't afraid, and he explodes. Because it's that anger which Mordecai provokes in him, which will ultimately bring Haman down. Why is his reaction so disproportionately intense? Well, we get a little window, don't we, into his heart that begins to explain it. This is a man who absolutely lives for honor and praise and recognition. He's been bursting all the way home to drop some names before his friends and his wife. From the moment the queen invited no one but him to that date with the king, he's been dying to tell. Yeah, she's an old friend of mine, you know. Just a nice quiet evening tonight, me, Esther, and the king, they were desperate for some alone time. Poor queen absolutely hangs on my advice. She needs me back tomorrow as well, you know. You know people like that, don't you? You've met them. Maybe there's a little bit of that inside us too. An obsession with our own importance, our own position, with everyone else knowing about it. How could he let a night of such incredible pride and honor and happiness get spoiled by one man in a marketplace? It's so incredibly petty, isn't it? But if the only thing you truly care about is yourself, then any little slight is going to hurt you like nothing else. Our pride is a terribly fragile thing. So Haman can boast about all the good things he's been given, riches, honor, sons. But verse 13, he'll let the joy be bled out of all of that good by the very existence of one Judean man who isn't impressed, who fears a greater king. That is a real warning sign, isn't it? When there's one little thing that you cannot be happy without. How many times will we sit down for a lovely family meal with all the people we love, maybe even our Christmas dinner, when we're meant to celebrate the deepest joy of all, and we let it all get spoiled by one little knock to our ego, one offense from the wrong family member. I wonder if that's a sign that we've let our pride matter too much. Well, for the second time in this chapter, a powerful, pompous man does what he's told by his wife. Do you see we're meant to be laughing at these men? Laugh at him and laugh at the plan they come up with. There's a, a moment in every classic Bond film when the villain comes up with some ridiculously elaborate way for a hero to die. He's caught the world's greatest spy. He has him in his hands. He expects him to die. He could put a bullet in him and be done with it then and there. But no, his ego always demands more, doesn't it? Bond has to be lowered slowly into a pool full of electric eels or sawn in half by a conveyor belt or something like that. And that is when you know that it is all going to backfire terribly on the villain. Well, if Zerash had just suggested that they hang Mordecai's body on any old ordinary spike, maybe he'd have gone the way of countless Persian criminals. But an ordinary spike isn't enough for them. 
let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. The word literally is a tree, but you do not get trees that grow that high. She's suggesting something that is five stories high, right up in the air. A skyscraper, it's a ridiculous thing. Made to match a ridiculous five-story ego. The point is that Mordecai's body will be nailed up on a wooden beam so tall that all the world will be able to see it. It's meant to be a total humiliation. But this is one of those stories that is far, far funnier the second time around. Because if we've read it before, we know that a total humiliation on that spike is exactly what's coming, but not for Mordecai. Before Haman goes to bed that night, he quite literally orders them to dig his own grave and make it nice and big and tall. His grave and the grave of everything he's boasted in in this chapter, his riches are taken away, his honor, his sons. Blissfully ignorant, he goes to bed, and we are meant to be laughing behind his back, aren't we? Here is a man so obsessed with how he looks that in his pride, he makes sure all the world will be able to see the day he ends up as a nothing. And ultimately, every devilish, selfish plan is just as ridiculous as this. All of our selfish, devilish thinking, it deserves to be laughed at. So the gallows are built, and the two rival plans are underway, one from a queen who is humble and wise and serving the good of her people, one from a boaster who is proud and foolish and thinking of no one but himself. We marvel at one as she stands before the king in such dignity in her royal robes, and we laugh at the other as he invites the whole world to watch his humiliation. And yet for all that, things are not going wonderfully now for our heroine, are they? Haman goes to bed that night absolutely confident that tomorrow Mordecai will die and he can go on his merry way to the feast. This is a man who always gets his own way. Even while he sleeps, the gallows are being built. And so for all of Esther's skill and her poise, well, where has her plan got to by the end of this chapter? She took a big gamble and she delayed asking for mercy from the king once, twice, and before she gets her third chance, Mordecai will be dead. A paragraph ago, it looked brilliant, didn't it? We were marveling at her gutsy, calm-headed confidence, but now she's coming very close to looking like the Liz Truss of the Old Testament, someone who took a massive gamble that never quite came off. And that delay that was at the heart of her strategy, it's going to come at a terrible, terrible cost, unless something supernatural intervenes in a story where nothing supernatural seems to happen. You see, our plans may be wise and humble and self-giving, or they might be stupid and proud and entirely self-obsessed. Actually, either way, 
it turns out that we aren't ultimately in control, Esther, any more than Zerash. The difference, the only difference, I think, is that she knows it. She's known it right from the start, hasn't she? It's why the backdrop to this story was those hidden prayers of every believer in the empire. Before it even began, she was putting herself into the hands of the steadfast king who loves to hear those prayers of his children and who laughs at the plans of the proud. And when we come back to this story after Christmas, that steadfast king is going to have some fun. For now, though, we can tuck the book back on the shelf, knowing that all over the world, the devil is building his own gallows nice and high, while our resurrected Redeemer stands welcomed in heaven in royal robes, which one will you trust to plan for you? Let's pray. God of heaven, we praise you for a heart that we can trust. We praise you for a character that we can rely on, for a son whom you love and welcome and whose plans are your plans. We praise you that in him we always have your ear, always have your full attention, always have a certain hope. Thank you that all the selfish schemes of the enemy will end in laughter. Keep us, we pray, from his kind of thinking. And thank you that all our lives and all our plans are in the hands of a father who loves his son and who loves us in him. For we ask it all in his name. Amen.